Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Another episode. We made it to another week. Yes. Are you on vacation yet? Uh, no, there's this thing called grading. <laughs> yes, even when you're on leave. And of course, the I'm, summer I, I, will be I, more, I, more writing and more teaching. But how many people, Andy, quite truthfully, you know, just absolutely in general love what they do? And I, and I do. And so, yes, I, when I'm on leave, I, I teach. And when I'm not on leave, I teach because that's what I like to do. And when I'm on leave, I try to write. And when I'm not on leave, I try to write because that's what I do. And Every week, we do our podcast. You know, we've been doing it now for um, almost two and a half years. It's almost exactly two and a half years, actually. And uh, we haven't missed a week. Um, but I think we will probably miss a week at some point. Um, um, the law of entropy. If you play with something long enough, you will break it. Right. <laughs> or at least crack it. Yeah. And I'm going out of the country for a couple of weeks uh, soon. But uh, it's kind of in prime Supreme Court decision season. So we'll probably, we'll, we'll try to keep up with it. And, and really that, uh, that brings up the subject of what our subjects are. You know, so we, we, we started off the podcast, not exactly sure what we were going to, you know, cover week to week. And we, we did it <laughs> amidst, you know, the, the mayhem of January 6th and the craziness of the, of the election uh, and the inauguration. And so there were a lot of you know, topics that uh, begged immediate uh, discussion. Then, of course, you had your the release of your book, The Words That Made Us. So we talked a lot about that. And over time, the podcast has evolved so that we've, you know, looked for things that are happening that people are interested in learning about. And we've started to tie it in. Uh, we've tried to tie it in with areas that you've done research on or have written about or an expert on in one way or another, and it's actually turned out to be quite a rich set of rich areas uh, to mine. And so that's been our approach. And then, of course, we've also brought in timely guests and prominent guests that have been able to uh, help us illuminate various areas of the constitutional ecosphere. And so the podcast has developed sort of a rhythm where, you know, in the fall there's oral arguments, so that tends to bring up uh, subjects for us to talk about, and now we're coming into uh, a season where there are a lot of Supreme Court decisions or, and opinions that are going to be coming down, and of course we'll be discussing those. But you know, ahead of those, this is an opportunity for us to explore other areas. Now, in the news lately has been, and we've discussed this somewhat, has been a lot of stuff about judicial ethics. And you've said that you know, well, you teach, you know, legal ethics, and of course you're ethical and you're acquainted with, with ethics, but um, it's not the area that you've done a lot of your scholarship in. Would you say that's fair to say? It is. But the subject is compelling and timely enough that we, we really don't want to ignore it. Um, so we've uh, enlisted a guest that will be joining us for our next podcast. So we're very, very, very happy about this. So Okay, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Kathleen Clark? Kathleen Clark is, by acclamation, one of the two, I would say, leading scholars of legal ethics. She's the rising star in the field. The fixed star is the great Stephen Gillers. He's at NYU. Kathleen is at Washington University in St. Louis. Our audience will probably not be shocked 
to learn that she has a Yale connection because a lot of people in in uh, the world of America's constitution do have Yale connections. People like Bob Woodward, who came on the podcast early on and is a Yaley, or Gary Hart, who is a, a Yaley law school, or Neil Katyal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you and me. Kathleen, um is a graduate the greenhouse and Jack Balkan and you know many so, so 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 many yes. okay yes so many so many Kathleen is a graduate of Yale College and you'll need to find out if she went to JE with Jonathan Edwards Residential College because you're fixated on that and um, but uh, only because uh, it's the best okay uh, whatever <laughs> <laughs> she went to Yale Law School she was my teaching assistant at, in Yale Law School a thing called a Coker Fellow I've always thought she was the best of the best from. Or this was, I think she was maybe my second or third TA ever. I always thought she was just absolutely superlative. Now she is, as I said, a very distinguished professor of legal ethics, judicial ethics at Washington University in St. Louis. And we reached out to her. Andy, we're recording this on Monday, May 8th. You're going to upload it around midnight on the 9th, Tuesday the 9th and in the morning of uh, Wednesday the 10th. But we reached out to her earlier today and she immediately reached back and said she'd, she'd do it. And, and thank you, Kathleen, for that. And so we're going to record the episode later this week, upload it next week. And audience, so we've gotten a lot of your questions about recent issues of judicial ethics, especially Supreme Court ethics. And we're going to have the expert and we're going to ask her questions on on your behalf and other good questions that we hope we can come up with Andy and, and yours truly. And you'll, you'll, you'll get smart, smart answers from someone who really is the expert. And that's what we try to promise on the podcast is genuine expertise. And our audience has been sending in questions, but for those of you that are listening today, um, today, not really today, but it'll be today for you. It'll be Wednesday or Thursday. Um, if you do have a question for Kathleen, I am going to look over the audience questions before we do that interview. Um, so send it in right away, uh, and we'll consider asking them. Some of them probably will cover the same ground, so I won't necessarily ask every question that get, that gets sent to us. But we'd appreciate knowing what it is that you want to know. Meanwhile, we've been you know, monitoring the news. And although there's been a lot of stuff about ethics, there have been some things that have also crossed into another area that we've talked about, namely uh, education, legal education, higher education. And there was an article, it was uh, about a week ago in the New York Times that purported, I think, to be an article about ethics, um, or at least it, it seemed like it was touching on some ethical issues. Um, what what it considered to be ethical issues. Uh, but I think that uh, we can talk about it at this point because um, because I think it's more about higher education and legal education than it is about ethics in the end. So it was an article in the New York Times called How Scalia Law School Became a Key Friend of the Court. And it talks about George Mason University Law School, and now known as the Antonin Scalia Law School. And we we mentioned it, or maybe it's the Antonin Scalia School of Law. I'm not sure of the exact, you know, wording. I think it's the Scalia Law School. Okay, there you go. Um, and uh, so, in this article, the Times said that they obtained thousands of internal university emails. Okay, 
And so now already it sounds like this is going to be a big expose, you know, that they've, that they've, they've gotten all these, these emails. And, you know, you looked at the... Andy, can we just stop right there just for a minute, just because there's an interesting issue there. Because George Mason is government-supported institution, it's not a purely private institution, it's subject to a state version of the Freedom of Information Act. There's a Federal Freedom of Information Act, and there are state FOIAs, is what they're called. And candidly... Some of these state FOIAs are really overbroad. So my brother is the dean of a law school, a state law school, a state-subsidized law school, University of Illinois. He's been on the podcast, and we've talked about him a lot. He's co-author of this brief in the Independent State Legislature case, and the audience knows I'm very proud of him. He's a graduate of Yale Law School, clerk for the Supreme Court for Harry Blackman, and just a preeminent scholar in his own uh, right, and subject to FOIA, state FOIA, as dean of the law school. And every email, practically every email that he sends out or receives is FOIA-able. That's true even when I'm sending an email or he's sending me an email. Even if I'm talking about my dad or something like our, our, our dad or something like that, it can get caught in this blanket FOIA request. Frankly, the state FOIAs sometimes are so broad that they're sweeping in all sorts of stuff that fr- may not even be the rest of our business. Sometimes a, F- a FOIA can be so broad that they encourage these FOIAs not use email, you know, to, to talk offline or something if they want to talk about something substantive. So, so in fact, often, you know, I email Vic and I say, give me a call, you know, because I want to, maybe I want to talk to him about something family related, but I'm a law professor. He's a law professor. Therefore it's FOIA-able. You know, this is a, an issue with presidential uh, papers and things like that. Also, uh, Donald Trump famously, you know, wouldn't use email and uh, or text or I hardly text, but but he, I think he does business mostly verbally. Um, and you know, the any scholar of presidents knows that presidential papers are are a you know a treasure trove of of information. Now there is almost no papers. It's all it's all electronic. Um, or and there's, you know, such a paranoia about this that uh, I think that we're, what's meant to make things more transparent and open and discoverable, in fact, may render the record nearly blank. In, yes, in many that, cases, that, 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 the possibility that what promises to be more more transparency will end up creating less. That's at least a, a, an issue. So I stopped you. You were beginning to talk about the FOIA, but. I have a little bit of experience because because Yale is not foiable. It's it's private, and University of Illinois is foiable because it's a public institution. Uh, so I know just a little bit about this because of conversations I've had with Vic about state FOIA. Of course, you've got the anti FOIA, which is FERPA. You know, I have no idea what that is. Well, it's, it has to do with you know disclosure of of university records, like. Like a, if a, if my kid goes to Yale, I can't necessarily see his grades. Oh, or okay. Something like okay. That. Well, that's connected to the Buckley Amendment and yes. other things. Okay. Right. Yes. So, right. So that, that so that, that you have over confidentiality and under confidentiality. Um, but anyway, so 
getting back to this this article, and the point here about this article, let's just summarize it fairly quickly, is that this law school, which you know they said, well, it was it was hanging around like number forty five in the rankings of of law schools, and we've talked about the rankings and you know what's good and bad about them, but they considered it important. Um, one of their emails talked about. The fact that they were they had they had fallen a little bit, and if they dropped out of the top fifty, it would be a disaster, you know, for the law school. So they were concerned about their their ranking, and um, also the school had always had a bit of a conservative bent, um, and so they were looking for a way to, you know, rise as a law school and also to, um, you know, further perhaps a conservative uh, conservative cause. And they saw an opening because, I think, um, of the polarization that was going on in the academic legal community as a whole. Um, And so they got a a lot of money from a name that you may have heard in the news, Leonard Leo. And uh, it says they got $30 million from him. And then they got more money from some unknown donor. And then they speculate on who it might be. Anyway... Um, the point is that they they got a lot of money and they and they made a move towards uh, trying to get Supreme Court justices involved with the law school. And part of it, uh, obviously, there's geographic proximity to Washington D.C. So if you, you know if these these justices are working in Washington, they might uh, this could be convenient for them. And the article goes through a number of uh, benefits that that have been bestowed upon the justices from the law school, some summer courses that they taught that they were paid for, um, some dinners that they were invited to, and generally the fact that they would teach courses at the law school and be made to feel welcome. And so there, but of course the tone of the article is that this is somehow scandalous. Um, So what was your reaction to the article, Akil? Bigger scandal is that most top law schools, including my own at Yale, are missing an opportunity to expose their students to some of the best conservative legal scholars. Given that vacuum, it makes sense for uh, an up-and-coming school, a hungry school, a, a newer school, to try to beat the market by um, hiring smart conservatives who deserve actually to have gigs at top law schools but don't always have gigs at top law schools. This is why competition is a good thing in the world. It, it in general, it keeps us all honest. So I would say the real scandal is that a place like Yale Law School has very few uh, public law conservatives and that that ill serves our students and the country um, and, the, and the, the, the legal system. But but if we're not hiring some of the best legal conservatives, people who themselves, for example, clerked at the Supreme Court, went to top law schools themselves, had top grades at top law schools, and these are the, the meritocratic boxes that I'm checking off, speaking very bluntly about how the system works, and write good articles that are cited by judges and other scholars and published in highly respected law journals. If, if the top schools 
the highest ranking schools aren't hiring such folk, then actually that's a sensible strategy for George Mason to hire folks who are, as it were, a bargain, are underplaced. So that's actually a sensible strategy. If you're trying to beat the market, you have to figure out where the market is going wrong. It's not so easy to beat the market. I think George Mason actually has an impressive faculty and probably disproportionately conservative in part because the other schools are missing out on an opportunity. An analogy might be, and this would be, all analogies are imperfect, and this is hugely imperfect um, because it's not quite fair to George Mason, but let's take the media generally. It's thought that there's some liberal bias in much of the mainstream media. Now, over the last 30 or 40 years, that created an, an opportunity, an opening for conservative outlets to uh, beat the market, as it were, we call that conservative outlet Fox. Now, the reason that's unfair to George Mason is I don't think they're quite like Fox. I actually don't think that Fox always has, we saw that with a recent lawsuit against it, the highest of journalistic standards. Some parts of Fox do, some parts of Fox do not. I, I respect George Mason Law School. They have many very smart, impressive professors who are doing very interesting work. And the New York Times story kind of missed some of that. Um, well, I think it missed, that yeah, I think it missed more than that, frankly, uh, if I can give my own critique um, on, on this. First of all, uh, well, let's talk about the issue. And you of, love the New York Times, so this is great. Go for it, Andy. Now, this was this was a bad <laughs> article, I thought, because, well, first of all, you know, the, the essence, the thrust of the article was that, okay, these Supreme Court justices are getting paid a lot of money to come and do things at George Mason. Well, first of all, they point out that they're limited to $30,000 in outside income in a year of, of this type. That's not that much money when you're talking, you know, in, in, like if you were talking about a top lawyer, you know, at a top firm, that's just not enough to corrupt, you know, a Supreme Court justice. And I would, and I would you know, say that as someone that runs, you know, uh, educational programs, if we could get Supreme Court justices to teach in Everscholar for weeks at a time, you know, maybe we wouldn't pay them $30,000. We'd give them some good money, you know, to do that. Um, so, that, of course, that's, that's market rate. So that's one thing. I don't consider that, that corruption, number one. Number two, as the, as the article reports, although it's, it's somewhat buried, they don't just get conservative justices to do this. Elena Kagan has taught there. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, was, was the recipient of one of these. Sonia Sotomayor went there. So it's not only the conservative justices that are, that are involved in these things. So there's that. Oh, um, and, and, and that's connecting. You mentioned this earlier. They have geographic proximity to the court, and that's one of the assets. They're, they're entrepreneurial. They're lean and trying to, you know, and hungry and, and, and trying to, to move up. And so what are their assets? I'm saying, ah, well, they actually have a, a smart faculty, probably disproportionately conservative compared to other faculties, which uh, are missing opportunities to have smart conservatives. But what's another asset that they've got? Their location. It's easier for a justice to, to teach one day a week at George Mason, which is just across town, than it is to teach at Stanford, which is across the country, you know, or at Yale, which is uh, um, hours away, whether by plane, train, uh, or, or automobile. But here's what I, what I thought is the bigger problem that they really entirely missed in this article. Um, 
As a citizen of, of the United States, I care about the legal profession. Um, I care about the, the notion that the country could become less polarized if we had thought leaders, you know, intellectual leaders, political leaders that themselves listened to their opposition, had respect for people with different opinions. And one of the places that that's going to be incubated is at law schools. So I want there to be conservatives and liberals at law schools teaching, you know, with each other, listening to each other's ideas, debating each other's ideas, giving their students, you know, both sides of, of, these, of the issues. I want there to be a real conversation. I don't want the same polarization that we see, you know, elsewhere in the country to extend to legal education. So... I don't like the idea that we would have a liberal law school and a conservative law school and never the two shall meet. Um, and we've had on this podcast, we've heard a couple of examples uh, of this problem. So for, so when we went to, we were invited to uh, have a live podcast at the Yale uh, chapter of the Federalist Society. We talked to the students there. And one of the things that they told us was that although they've tried to engage um, liberal students in debate and dialogue that they are consistently rebuffed um, and that if they try to you know meet with the American Constitutional Society whatever that that it doesn't happen and then when we spoke with our friend Kate Shaw you know about uh, her podcast um, strict scrutiny we talked we asked her about you know whether she would have conservatives on her podcast to, you know, bandy it about. And, you know, we, we were very grateful to Kate for coming on to the, the podcast. And I have a lot of respect for her. But, you know, her response was disappointing on this question, you know, where, where she said that, no, she didn't want to raise her blood pressure. This was something that, that she, she didn't want to do. So there's examples here uh, of the, you know, the legal community being, not being open to, uh, you know, cross the aisle debate. And I don't like it when, you know, a law school is uh, is this is known as conservative or liberal. So, who do I blame for this? I don't blame George Mason because, as you say, there was an opportunity entirely. Anyway, I don't blame them. There's an opportunity created for them to, uh, you know, fill a void for them to rise in the in the law school world um, because good conservatives are not being hired as much as let's say they might be by, uh, you know, top law school. So I would like to see Yale and, you know, the University of Virginia and, you know, Stanford and whoever else um, hire, you know, some, some top conservatives. Now, I say this as I am not conservative, but I, want, but I would like to see this. And this is what I think is the real problem that the article missed. Your reaction, Akil. Andy, I agree with you. Um, let me say something about UVA. <laughs> Uh, since you mentioned that in particular, university reputations are very hidebound. The older schools tend to do particularly well. We've talked about this before. There were nine schools at the time of the American Constitution. Seven of them were private. They are the seven oldest Ivy League schools, every Ivy League school except for Cornell. And today, they basically remain seven of the most highly ranked schools in the country, no matter what the ranking. So it's hard to break into that system. 
and George Mason is trying to break into that system. It's the new kid on the block. That's an analogy to Fox. Fox 50 years ago or 40 years ago was the new kid on the block trying to um, break in. And, and, and UVA is a very, very well-respected school, but it doesn't have quite the, the massive resources of a Harvard or Yale, and I think it's done particularly well. Um, I mean, I guess we could use maybe Georgetown might be an example, or George Washington, of a school that has the geographic proximity that uh, George Mason does and perhaps hasn't had the same level of ideological diversity well, not that George Mason is, is so diverse, but you, you get my, you get my point. Um, so there was an opportunity, perhaps, there for those law schools. Speaking of George Washington, they did have Clarence Thomas teaching there, and he withdrew recently from George Washington. I think, perhaps, in part because some of the students there were critical of his involvement and participation. Right. So anyway, so that, so that's the article. Um, you know, we'll we'll post it. It's very long, um, but uh, you know, the bottom line was I thought that uh, you know there was uh, a lot of hat, but uh, not that much cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Um, so, um, but but more generally, let's t- just t- say one other thing. We promise our audience an account of the ecosystem. One part of it is the academy, the legal academy, and another part of it is the, the judiciary, especially the Supreme Court. And and they are connected. George Mason Law School is not actually like a law firm that's litigating cases before the Supreme Court on a daily basis. It's an educational institution, and it's bringing justices to embellish the educational experience of students and faculty at that school, and that's all to the good. And and legal ethics norms actually encourage judges and justices to uh, cooperate in efforts to do legal education. That's the, the, we'll have Kathleen Clark um, on in a future episode, but but that's actually positively encouraged. The judges are supposed to actually help inform the public about. Um, the role of law and the judiciary. And I want law students to, who are going to be lawyers and going to be officers of the court to have some sense of who the judges are, especially the judges at the apex court. And, and if you're lucky enough to go to law school in geographic proximity to the Supreme Court, to go to a GW, George Washington University Law School, or a Georgetown, uh, or a George Mason, or a UVA, yeah, it's a real opportunity, a special opportunity for you to hear directly from the justices themselves. The article um, did um, point out a couple of other ways that the law school interfaces with the court. They said that um, there have been more of their students that have become clerks um, at the Supreme Court in recent years than that happened before. You know, part of this could be that the justices are there. Maybe they get to know a student. Maybe they get to know a professor, and then the professor has a student that they recommend, and the justice may trust the professor's uh, recommendation because they've gotten to know them through teaching or whatever. So that's one possible scenario. Um, also, and all of that seems permissible. And I, I don't. We'll have Kathleen next week, but I, I don't see corruption there. Also, I mean, another thing that can happen. We've talked about the school rising in the rankings. 
well, when that happens, you're probably going to get better students. And then if you get better students, you know, you may, you know, get more Supreme students that are qualified for a Supreme Court clerkship. So that, that seems like, I mean, I could, I could see a scenario where that, where it wouldn't be on the up and up, but I don't think it's, it's necessarily that way. And then another point that the article made of a interface there was that some of the professors at the school have been filing, uh, been involved in filing amicus briefs before the Supreme Court. And uh, so, you know, is this questionable? Now, of course, you know, you've filed an amicus brief before the court. You've had students that have clerked uh, at the court, of course, and you've also invited justices to come and speak at Yale Law School, like Justice Thomas has spoken at your originalism conference. So it seems like you've put yourself in this same position. Do you feel that any of those are compromised? They're open, they're public, they're fully disclosed. When the justices receive any honorarium or income, they're supposed to be, I believe, on the disclosure forms, and Kathleen will talk about that next week. If there were lots and lots of money involved, then I could imagine that a justice might try to recuse in a case where a school or maybe its leading professors were parties or lawyers, but amicus briefs are slightly different uh, from from all that. We don't represent parties. We just represent our own views on the law often. It's permissible for a justice to be persuaded by someone. It's permissible for a justice to have a, a high opinion of scholar X or professor Y um, or a low opinion. Well, of course, you know, we know that you subscribe to uh, an originalist theory of jurisprudence. And we've talked in the past about how that requires, that that asks a lot of justices in terms of knowledge of of history, of constitutional history, American history. Um, And there's a certain reliance on the academics that take that is required in order to do good originalism, unless you're Hugo Black, you know, so... It uh, so I think under your theory of how things should go, it's a good thing for ju- it's necessary for justices to hear from professors. But perhaps you know people with other theories of of jurisprudence might not feel it's quite as important. Um, if you are a believer in precedent above all, the professor may have less of a value add because the professor is telling the justice about precedence and maybe the justice themselves said, well, I think I know a thing or two about that case. I I did write the majority opinion in it, you know. (laughs) And so I'm not saying that a professor even then couldn't have a value add because sometimes, Andy, you help me understand my own ideas better. And I I might, you, you know, you say something, say, yeah, actually, that's what I was kind of driving at and until but until you said it i'm not sure i understood with distinctive clarity so so sometimes you you can as a professor help the the, the justice understand a precedent better even a precedent that the justice authored you're more likely to have a bigger value add when you're telling the justice about something that justice doesn't know mm-hmm. um, the, the history of a constitutional provision or its textual background because that just may not be something the justice has studied before, and you, the scholar, the professor, are claiming that you have studied it in depth. Okay, so, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting things that this brings up, um, but what I really don't see is any kind of deep corruption here. But but look, we'll talk with Kathleen. 
and you know we'll, we'll ask her about it. Maybe she'll clue us into something that we've missed here. Right. And just to, to return one last time to the first point, the FOIA point, I suspect that if these emails weren't FOIA-able, there's probably no story at all. I, I, I suspect that every law school, public and private, you know, might have emails in which administrators, deans and professors say, gee, wouldn't it be nice if we could get Judge X or Justice Y to, to pay attention to our students, our professors, the ideas that are being generated by the, our school? Yeah, I mean, really, the... I mean, there wasn't a, a lot of smoke and guns here. I mean, here's an email. George Mason seems a really good place to be. That's an email. Of course, that email came from Justice Kagan. But anyway, so, I mean, you know, not, not terribly scandalous. Okay, that's one that was quoted in the article. Um, all right. So, you know, we've been getting questions from our audience. And let me read you a question and see if uh, it rings a bell with you. Hi, Professor Amar. This is from Grace R. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast. I love American history and I'm fascinated by the Constitution, but I'm wondering if you've ever considered hosting a British legal scholar as a guest. Um, I'd love to to know more about their unwritten Constitution. How does it work? Are there advantages to having an unwritten or uncodified Constitution? Finally, um, what's up with the old-fashioned Whigs in court? Um, seeing all the news about Charles III's upcoming coronation has me thinking more about the nation from which we declared our independence. Okay, so of course, a um, couple of things there, but the one that's most timely is that she brings up uh, the coronation of, of King Charles III that just took place. Um, now, we don't have too many coronations in this country. Uh, we have our own uh forms of succession. But this is something that you have written about. I have. Let me use this opportunity to um, urge the audience to give two of my books a chance. We don't have ads on this podcast in general. It is a free service that we're trying to provide you and I to the world. Truth be told, cars on the table, I love doing the podcast, but I actually want the audience to read the books because I put a lot of thought into them. And I'm going to talk about two in particular, one called America's Unwritten Constitution, which is all about America's counterpart to, to Britain's unwritten constitution. So I'll talk about that. But the one that also comes to mind is a book called The Words That Made Us. And Andy, this is the this week is the two-year anniversary of its pub date. And you and I did a road trip together when, when the book came out in the first week of, of May uh, 2021. And here's actually how the book begins. This is the first sentence of um, the first chapter. The news reached America on a steed that had no legs but promised swiftness. Now here's the next paragraph. The merchant ship Racehorse landed in Boston on Saturday, December 27, 1760, after 40 days on the choppy ocean that both connected and divided Old England and New England. A trader bore incontrovertible tidings from early November British newspapers, copies of which Samuel, Captain Samuel Partridge immediately distributed to Boston print shops for partial republication. As passengers and crew came ashore, word also spread from mouth to mouth. The old king was dead, and a young king now sat on the throne. 
The aged George II had passed away two months earlier, on October 25th to be precise. Officials across Great Britain promptly proclaimed the dead monarch's 22-year-old grandson, King George III, in what seemed to the London papers a smooth transfer of power. So Act 1, Scene 1 of Chapter 1, my first three paragraphs are about a new king sitting on the throne, George III. Okay, and that doesn't happen that often that you have a transition from an old monarch to a new monarch. You know, uh, maybe actually it's going to be something that happens. It's conceivable, at least, you know, once in 70 years or something like that. Okay, (laughs) we've just had that. Okay, my book two years ago opened with a new king, George the third. And now we have a new king. Charles III. And I promise you, if you read chapter one, you get to the end of chapter one. Oh, you will have a new understanding of the American Revolution. Um, uh, After having read that chapter, and that chapter begins with a new king being proclaimed by the relevant authorities. And that's what's what's happening right now. Now, technically, there's a slight difference between a proclamation and a coronation. And you'll learn some things about that in chapter one as well. Let me talk a little bit more generally about kings versus the American uh, head of state uh, position called a president. And then I'll talk a little bit more about uh, unwritten constitutionalism, um, British and American. Before you do that, I just, you know, a point that you've made to me in the past, I think it actually came to mind when I was listening to you. You talk about the difference between proclamation and coronation. And of course, you know, people that watch The Crown, as as we have, will recall that Elizabeth, you know, takes over when her father dies. Right. And her coronation 16 months later. Right. So was she queen all the time? Yes. Yes, she was. And what, yes. so... That's when, why the fra- the phrase is the king is dead long live the king. Executive power is seamless. There is no break in continuity of government whatsoever. That's why I say things in my books like the presidency never sleeps, at least constitutionally speaking. There is at every nanosecond and always must be uh, an executive. Congress goes in and out of session. The Supreme Court goes in and out of session. The presidency never, or the the monarchy never goes in and out of session. Right. And so, if you recall, like when when President Obama took the oath of office, there was like a you know a question about a word in the oath of office. They gave it to him again a day later. You know, well, what was he president? You know, that whole time. And and what you're saying is, I think that here that the the oath, although you have to take it, um, it's more equivalent to the coronation, um, and but because it's more the clock. You know that take that 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 declares the 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 president the new president. You're absolutely right. That's the position that I emphatically take in a book, America's Unwritten Constitution. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. That the oath is something that someone takes when they're already president. It's their first duty as president, and the, the oath does not make them president. It's the first thing that they're supposed to do as present, and if they don't do it, it doesn't mean that they're not present. It means that they're present and they haven't done something that they were supposed to do. Yes, my position is they become present by dint of the clock. When the clock strikes midnight or noon, depending on, and and the founding, there was a little ambiguity about whether it's midnight or noon, 
one presidency ends, the next one begins. At the founding, in the founding era, that's why we called the midnight judges. The commissions had to be signed and sealed before midnight because the thought was the, the president's commission um, expires at midnight on a certain day. Now, later on, now there was some ambiguity about whether it was actually midnight uh, or noon. Those are the two obvious focal points. A later amendment comes along, the lame duck amendment. And, well, Andy, this is actually an interesting point. The word noon now appears in the Constitution. It didn't before. Amendment 20, the terms of president vice president shall end at noon on the 20th day of January, and that's actually a different day than had happened before. They rejigger the, the the calendar so that now we have presidents inaugurated much quicker. Elections are typically on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, and it used to be the transfer of power occurred in March, early March of the next year. Now they're occurring on January 20th at, at noon, of the odd year. Um, so that shortens the lame duck period. The reason, by the way, that the statute provides that it's the first Tuesday after the first Monday is you're not supposed to, they don't want to have a presidential election should the first Tuesday be actually the first of the month, November 1st. Why not? So it's going to be November 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, or 8th. Why not November 1st? Why did they say the first Tuesday after the first Monday? Actually, the reason is they were worried that on All Hallows' Eve, what we call Halloween, people would get drunk and they'd be hungover the next day, All All Saints' Day, November 1st. Okay, the clock, in my view, is what makes someone president. Act 1, Scene 1 of The Words That Made Us, and I'm really proud of this book. And I want people to actually read it and experience it because you'll learn so much about what you need to know to be an American, to understand our Constitution vis-a-vis the British system. But, but the first question the Americans have is, we've just found out that there's a new king on the British throne. It takes time to travel then. We don't have you know television, transatlantic cable, and the internet, and, and satellites. So it's, but we've just learned that this king, actually, a new king, uh, the old king is dead. A new king is uh, actually sitting on the throne and has been formally proclaimed king in London and and all the other major cities and market towns um, in Britain. And the question the colonists actually ask themselves is, should we proclaim George III king here in Boston? And... It's a real question because we haven't gotten instructions from our British overlords. They haven't told us what to do. And on the one hand, it might be awkward for us to just do it on our own when they haven't told us. On the other hand, it would be weird if every day in every court in Boston and in Massachusetts and in all sorts of other governmental proceedings, things are happening in the name of George II, whom we all know to be dead and in his grave. Okay, so it's going to be weird if we don't proclaim the new king and it's going to be weird or at least problematic if we do proclaim the new king, given that British authorities have not told us that we're supposed to do that. That's act one, scene one. And in that, 
I tell the, the audience, ah, you're seeing something really interesting about the British Empire. They're not paying much attention to the Americans because that's actually an important question. If you think America is important and they devote a lot of energy to a lot of pomp and circumstance. It's not even a coronation. It's just a proclamation. But there's a lot of pomp and circumstance in London and they're not even thinking about America. I say that's interesting. And then the second thing that happens is under British law, when one monarch um, dies and a new monarch takes the throne, there's a six-month grace period. At the end of that six-month grace period, there have to be new writs that issue in the name of the new monarch. And it turns out in America, that's going to precipitate a judicial proceeding that's called the writs of assistance case. And I try to show the reader that that's actually when the American Revolution first began. The deep roots of the American Revolution, what John Adams later called the seeds of the American Revolution, lie in that incident in 1760-61, which is years before most people say the American Revolution first gets going with the Stamp Act and the Sugar Act and other things at the end of the Seven Years' War, what we call the French and Indian War in 1763. So that's all Act One, and it's about a new monarch. And now we have a new monarch. I want to say something else about the new monarch, and then I'm going to talk about unwritten constitutionalism. Later in the words that made us, I say, here's an amazing thing about America. We produce some pretty extraordinary people, and then we actually, as a society, select them to lead us. George Washington is actually a pretty impressive person. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, these are all actually pretty extraordinary people. And the Americans are picking them. And often not just picking them, but putting their leaders in just the right positions at just the right time and then booting them when someone better comes along. So we produce a Benjamin Franklin and we make him our top diplomat and he succeeds in playing the British off against the French and the French do all the paying and the Americans end up with all the land. Ben Franklin is a genius and America produced a genius and it picked him for just the right position. George Washington turns out to be a, a good revolutionary general, not because he's actually the world's greatest military figure. He might not be, but he believes in civilian supremacy and he's going to follow the law and not turn himself into a, a dictator. And we produced a Washington, we as a society, and then picked him and picked him again to be president and picked him to serve a second term. The Brits don't have that system. You know, they rely, you might say, on luck. Charles might be good. He might be bad, but he's king because he popped out of certain person's womb at a certain time, and that's it. Now, truthfully, I don't think he's so impressive, and I never have. Okay, I said it, and I'll say some more about that in just a second, and I'll tell you why I don't think he's impressive, and it's going to connect to George III. I'm going to connect it back to Act 1, Scene 1 of the book. Here's what can be said for the British system. You know you're going to be king, and you see it coming, and you can prepare for it. You know, he's been preparing for this forever. There might be some advantages to be able to, you know, prepare for the job. Elizabeth, and this is the crown, that's the series, knows at a certain point she's going to be queen and she begins to ready herself for it with proper preparation and study. There are, there are episodes about her being taught as a, as a youngster what it will be to be queen, to be monarch, and lots of episodes about Charles's training. At the end of the day, Britain basically just gives authority to people by dint of their birth, and we Americans choose them. And the question is whether that's a better system 
ordinary people who may not be, you know, rocket scientists, but if you add them all together, to, to a lot of ordinary people actually end up picking better leaders than uh, a British monarchy system. Now, I'm in college way back when, and the very first time Charles, the, the future Charles III, the current King of England, he was then Prince of Wales, the first time he comes to my attention, I'm watching an interview with him on the television, what they would call the telly. And he's talking about his studies in Cambridge. He actually studied some history. And he's making the case that George III, the very same George III I'm just, I was just telling you about, you see, George III was actually a pretty good monarch and has gotten a bum rap in history. And I'm thinking, like, what a nitwit you are. George III lost America, and he lost it needlessly because in Act 1, Scene 1, I hadn't written it yet, okay? I'm going to write it 40 years later, but I had already known enough because this is what I was studying um, as an undergraduate at Yale College that George III had Americans at hello. Chapter 1 is all about the first five pages, how Americans are cheering their new king. They're rooting for him. Okay, they're very loyal to him. And 15 years later, they're rebelling against him because he's an utter nitwit, I believe, because he's not paying attention to America. He picks people around him that aren't paying attention to America, that are condescending toward America, that do bad things to Americans. That's what the Declaration of Independence is all about. And, and here's like one little aha fact to show you this. Ben Franklin is in Britain, London, for about 20 years, the greater part of 20 years, definitely um, uh, before the American Revolution. And George III can't even be bothered to invite him for a cup of tea. He's the greatest man in the new world, one of the great scientists of the world. And he can't be bothered because George, because Ben Franklin is not high-born and he, he's just, you know, uh, uh, from America and, and, and they're looking down their noses on Americans. And the Americans understand this and resent it, that they're, they're not being paid attention to. They, not, the Brits don't even bother to send them instructions. Don't create opportunities for talented people like Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, James Otis, and others to really rise to the top of the system. So I thought, think from the beginning, what I actually say in this new book, the words that made us, this is a, a, a phrase that in the book, I am not going to read it, to, but that George III was a blockhead who surrounded himself by other blockheads and needlessly lost America when he had them at hello. That's what I actually believe. I make the case for it in this book. But when I'm a college kid, the very first time Charles ever entered my consciousness, he's on the television explains to some interviewer that he's just studied the history of British monarchs and no George III was much better king than he's been given credit for by history. Which is, by the way, the thesis of a horrible new book by Andrew Roberts called The Last King of America that makes tries to make the same case and I think it's preposterous. You do say a couple of things in the book that, uh, that I think one might interpret uh, to mean that while George III was, did a terrible job of trying to hold on to America, there were structural factors that would nevertheless make it more or less inevitable that, they, that this couldn't continue forever anyway. You say, in fact, that Benjamin Franklin himself points out the demographics and that you know America's population is doubling every so often, 
and it's going to be, uh, you know, outpopulate Britain very quickly. And how's a small island going to rule, you know, a bigger nation from across the ocean? You say this. So, I do. So that, you know, so that, and Franklin, as you point out, you know, sees this. So that, and then you say, well. And hang on, on that, I say, that's why the system would need to be renegotiated and the Brits were stupid in not renegotiating. So this is a great question. Let's actually talk about it because this is actually comparative constitutional law. I'm telling you, honest, what I really believe. I believe that the British system was a system I'm going to connect it to unwritten constitutionalism. It's not one written document, okay? It's traditions and customs and institutions and maxims, a bit of a hodgepodge, cases, um, important landmark statutes and understandings that evolve over time. The British, the English constitution actually is going to become a British constitution when there's an act of union and parliamentary sovereignty will kind of explode onto the scene after the glorious revolution. So it's changing organically in all sorts of ways. And it needed to change as America becomes more mature and becomes more populous. And the Brits aren't paying attention to this and they're not actually understanding Americans rising expectations and capabilities and they're they're not adjusting the system okay and that's because they're not paying attention and because americans aren't represented and they and they are looking down their noses on americans so that's that's one thing they could have done things differently they could speaking of that you just said something that that's relevant to that which is they're not represented you know and some people have said well you know the Americans aren't represented in Parliament. Maybe they could be represented in Parliament. But you say in the book and and elsewhere that it wouldn't have worked. You know, there there would have been too much of a tendency to corruption with the you know representatives over there. And you know, they would have been outvoted. A small group. They can't you know talk um, every weekend with their constituents because there's no internet and and no satellite. But there were other things you could have done. You could have, for example, said, okay, the British could have said, listen, you know, we have an empire. Everyone benefits from it. We defeated the French nation in Canada. America is the beneficiary of all that. You need to pay your fair share. So here's our assessment each of what each colony should pay. You're going to come up with the way to pay it. Okay. We're not going to impose the tax on you. You come up, here's your requisition. You figure out whether you want a head tax, whether you want an income tax, whether you want a, an excise tax, a stamp tax, land tax, whatever you want. Okay. Um, but they, they just weren't working with the Americans and listening to them try to come up with a scheme that they could accept. And of um, course they do try to do, you know, do Canada differently when the time so, comes eventually here's what the Amer- this is this is chapter 2 of the book americans invent what will become the british commonwealth the americans say listen we sh- parliament shouldn't be able to tell us what to do because we're not represented but we can be connected um, because we can have a common king you know we can have our local parliament in massachusetts that imposes taxes on Massachusetts, and um, we have a king, and it's the same king as Britain does, so we can have these separate polities that all have the same, that share a monarch. So we're no longer dependent on parliament, but we are connected to to Britain through a common king. That, the, the Americans are smart, and they come up with this idea, and the Brits aren't paying any attention on listening to this, you know, reconceptualization of uh, the empire, but that will become the British Commonwealth. And in 
the Crown episodes, they're going to show you there's some tension there because um, there's one episode in particular where Elizabeth is actually kind of in a tense relationship with Margaret Thatcher vis-a-vis South Africa because Elizabeth is at one and the same time the head of state of Britain and also the head of state of many other countries, including countries in Africa, where she's also the monarch. What we are seeing right now in the last week are places like Jamaica, um, other West Indian nations saying, why should we be in the Commonwealth anymore? Why should we have a Charles III or something? But today they are not governed by parliament. Okay, the parliament doesn't tell them what to do the way parliament tried to tell the colonists what to do. Parliament sticks to regulating Britain. Their connection is through the British Commonwealth of Nations. Gordon Wood and others have called Dominion Model through a common crown. That itself is actually under some real pressure these days, as I think there are 18 countries right now in the Commonwealth, but, but Australia is thinking about exiting, and, and so is Jamaica, and so are some, several of the other countries. Okay. But what I am telling you is, oh, if you read... Chapters one and two of the words that made us, you'd actually have some really interesting insights into the similarities and differences between the British system and the American system and the current controversies around the British Commonwealth. But the book begins with one monarch dying and a new monarch taking over and how that's going to affect actually people halfway across the world. Say it one other way. And then, Andy, I know you want to jump back in. My dad is 94 years old, and when he's born, he's born a British subject, you know, in India. I think I have a little bit of a sense of how the Americans understood things, because my dad is telling me, listen, when I'm a little boy, the, there's this British monarch, and we never voted for him, and he's telling us what to do. And there's this British parliament, and we never voted for them, and they're telling us what to do. And they're not actually always acting in the best interests of of their Indian subjects and, and see the movie Gandhi and watch the Amritsar massacre. Um, my dad went to medical school in Amritsar. That's where he met my future father-in-law. They were actually roommates in medical school together. The Brits in his lifetime were acting in certain ways, you know, just with arrogant swagger over subjects halfway across the world, not altogether differently than they were acting in America in the 1760s. And I am a skeptic, finally, Andy, of 1619 because on certain claims, because, yeah, the Americans weren't perfect, but the American northern states do immediately get rid of slavery after the revolution or very shortly thereafter. In 1776 or shortly thereafter, Americans get rid of, of slavery um, in the north. And the Brits don't really until 1833. The Brits were not better than the Americans on slavery in 1776. And, and the Brits were not better on race issues into my father's lifetime. It's a genuinely interesting question to ask, like, why in the 21st century do we have some idea that people are, you know, born to rule over other people? Whereas the, the Lincoln idea, the American idea, it's a variant of what Jefferson said. There are different ways of understanding Jefferson and Franklin and Adams in the Declaration of Independence. But if we're all born equal... Why is it that Charles seems to, just because of the way he was born, entitled to to rule over other people? So, of course, you know, we were talking about unwritten, you know, constitutions uh, versus written constitutions. And as you've pointed out, the American Constitution is, there's an unwritten component to it as well. 
but it's certainly a big difference between the two the two nations and um i was at a uh, conference last week at at columbia law school about uh what's going on in israel now and it's it's interesting to bring that into this this discussion a little bit because you know what you see in britain with the coronation yes it's true you know it's it's a kind of a strange concept to america that someone would be born to rule but what you're seeing is it's it's a form of a balanced a balanced constitution in other words you have you know the 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 head of state is different from the uh the head of the ruling party for example um where uh, uh, whereas in in israel for example that's not really the case the head of state is really benjamin netanyahu who is the prime minister, who's the leader of the coalition that has the majority in the Knesset. And uh, so that's, and that's most of the government. Anyway, whereas in Britain, you have the House of Commons, you have the House of Lords, and you have you know, the, the, uh, the monarch. So um, there, there are roles to di- in, in a balanced constitution that can, that can be beneficial. Um, so for example, uh, you know, Churchill talks a lot about uh, how monarchy can be a moderating force in a constitutional monarchy. Um, and Israel is having a problem now because they have a, uh, an unusual structure. We're not going to get into it you know, in too much detail right now, but the Supreme Court uh, there is, it's, not, it's neither elected nor really appointed by elected officials. It's appointed by a sort of a professional uh, you know, group of professionals, uh, there is a role for the government, but but it's a minority role, so it's a relatively undemocratic uh, method of appointing the court. Uh, but the court is seen by the public as a necessary in, in polls as seen as a necessary institution for protecting the rights of the citizens uh, against the tyranny of the majority. So you have these, you know, these different forms of of constitutional makeup, and they and they all have you know, certain advantages. It's, it's not so simple to say, well, you know, he's born, why should he rule over other people? It's actually a complex system that's evolved over centuries. And, you know, yeah, he has the scepter and he's got the crown and he's got a lot of money, but is he really ruling over, over anybody? Um, so. So two, two thoughts on that. You mentioned the unwritten constitution and so did uh, the question or uh, grace. I mean, I promised I was going to talk about that. So I have a book, um, I've been talking about the words that made us, and I'm really proud of it. And I, audience, I want you to read it um, because it, it's if you like the podcast, you're going to like the book. There are a lot of ideas in it um, that are genuinely relevant. But I wrote another book called America's Unwritten Constitution. Its point of departure is we have unwritten traditions and understandings that are very important in our system, akin to the kind of unwritten tra- traditions and principles that drive the British system. It's not that the Brits have an unwritten constitution and Americans have a written constitution. It's that Americans have a written constitution and an unwritten constitution, and Britain doesn't really have a written constitution. Now, it has writings, but it doesn't have one composite text. It has Magna Carta. It has Petition of Right. It has the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679. It has many important writings. It has landmark judicial opinions and decisions, which are in writing. So it's a bit of a misnomer, perhaps you say, to unwritten constitution. What By that we mean there's no one composite document remotely comparable 
to the U.S. Constitution, including its amendments, and or the state constitutions, including their amendments. Even speaking of amendments, we have, in principle, some pretty clear procedures for amending the written constitution, and they don't quite have the same thing in Britain. How does the constitution change there? Sort of more organically, renegotiation. What I said earlier is the Brits missed their golden moment in the 1760s and 70s to actually try to renegotiate a system because the fundamental underlying demographic realities were changing dramatically. Americans were trying to say, actually, like, listen to us, the British monarch, George III, wouldn't even let the petitions from Americans be read to him. He just stoppered his ears. That's, you know, someone, Charles, that you think is is impressive? Really? Is that what they taught you at Cambridge? That someone who won't even listen to the petition sent by his subjects? So the guy who gets it is not Charles III. Maybe he's changed his mind over the years. I hope so. person who gets it is not a young a Prince Charles who on the telly was saying genuinely idiotic things, I thought. Then the person who gets it is Lynn Miranda, who to whom the book is dedicated, the words that made us along with several other people, including the great Neil Katyal, who introduced me to Lynn. And it's the scenes in the play Hamilton in which the George III character is a kind of blocking out Americans. Da, 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 da. It's doot, doot, doot. I can't even hear you. You know, no matter what you say. And what does he say? He says, I love you so much. I'm going to have to you know, send armies to kill you. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. And, and that's, what I'm saying, let's be honest. I, see, I didn't watch the coronation. I think this is crap. Okay. I, I believe, and to, since you mentioned Israel, look, there are different ways of structuring things. You can have parliamentary systems or presidential systems. You can have strong judicial review, weak judicial review. You can have a strong upper council of the legislature, you know, upper house or not. That's all fine. I am rejecting absolutely in the 21st century, the idea of hereditary rule. I think it's, I think it's silly. It's bad. I'm, I'm a small R Republican. And there are people, this is relevant because this is what the people of Australia are thinking about right now today. There were, there were excellent stories in the WashPo and the New York Times about this. And unlike maybe the, the George Mason story, people in Jamaica are talking about this today. Small, and they call themselves small R Republicans. Why should political power ever be hereditary, you know, whether we're talking about a hereditary house of lords that's anything other than just honorific and vestigial or a hereditary monarch that has any power whatsoever. If it's just a symbolic thing, if it's like some Disneyland ceremony or some make-believe show, fine. But actually, the monarch of England today, the monarch of Britain, has real power. It makes certain decisions about who has first crack at forming a government in, in on issues of war and peace has genuine authority has has massive massive um, economic power. Why should we have this strong hereditary principle, which we do in Britain today? And I don't get it. Honestly, I'm I'm a I'm an American very very deeply. So you can have unicameral systems. Nebraska, bicameral systems, you know, strong judicial review, 
weak judicial review, a presidential model or a parliamentary model, have your head of state be different than your head of government or the same. But Australia could do all of that and have no connection whatsoever to anything monarchical or hereditary. Well, I wasn't really speaking in favor of monarchy per se so much yeah. as the, the – but the notion of balanced government um, yes. where you have – you know, Israel is really, you know, struggling right now because it has neither a constitution nor a balanced structure structure to its government. The Supreme Court is a very kind of extra constitutional uh, body, and uh, it's it serves a very important purpose, I think, uh, for many years, and it's actually embodied the will of the people in some manner that the Knesset has not. But um, actually, paradoxically. But because they have no constitution, the court has very little protection from the Knesset, and uh, and you're seeing that right now. So I just I was I was just saying that balanced government in a variety of forms, not necessarily between monarchy and democracy, but rather you know you know you have different branches that have different sure. you know there there is value there, and I think we're seeing some of the value to to constitutional government uh, also, which they. They really would like to have, you know, they have this Declaration of Independence that says we're going to have a constitution by next year. And of course, now it's 70 years later and they still don't have a constitution. And so it's it's a real problem. But anyway, this is not about Israel. I just. But I thought- no, 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 I'm glad you raised it. And truthfully, Andy, I, I deflected it a bit because I don't swing. Typically, a pitch is not in my strike zone. and I don't know enough about the Israeli constitution or others. I do know just even in America We've got one state with a unicameral system, Nebraska, and other states with bicameral systems, and some states with very strong judiciaries and other states with somewhat weaker judiciaries, and we can look at all of that. My deepest claim is that in the 21st century, yes, I am very skeptical about hereditary um, claims of political right, and my other central claim is, in principle, it seems to me better to have our leaders picked by the people rather than just by some a kind of random hereditary principle. But is that true in a world where the people not just vote for Donald Trump and make him president, but do it again? You know, it, maybe, you know, any system is, is going to be imperfect. Fool me, you know, once, okay, but fool me twice. So, oh, I'm going to look like an utter idiot, I would say, if Donald Trump is re-elected president and does horrible things. Now, now those are two big ifs. But if so, you know, some future historian is going to come along and say, boy, that Amar was completely foolish because, yeah, Charles III is not perfect, but he's so much better than the American system that's capable of giving all this power far more than than an English prime minister has, far more than an English monarch has, all this power to someone consummately unfit to rule just because uh, that person got a certain number of votes by Americans who aren't paying attention. So mm-hmm. that's why democracy will work only if Americans genuinely pay attention. And we can't actually do our job as voters every four years unless we understand what the system is. 
we're actually the hiring committee. We're drafting for a position. We need to understand what that position is. And the only way I believe we can understand that is really knowing deeply our constitution and its history. And that's where the books come in. That's where the podcast comes in. Because I think the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was a massive failure. History will record uh, one of the biggest failures in the history of American constitutionalism. That's what I actually do believe. And I think we're at risk of making that mistake again. And I further believe, actually, audience, if you read my books, you'll understand what the president is supposed to be and not supposed to be. And Donald Trump is so far from what he's supposed to be when you actually study who George Washington is and and what that position is all about. That, wow, okay, how is it that we... Um, have drifted so far. My claim is we've drifted so far because we actually, as a society, are not understanding our Constitution the way we need to. Okay. Well, it didn't uh, start off as as a uh, as a referendum on America or as a advertisement for the words that made us. But you know what? There are you know there is a, a, a reason that you spend time writing these books, not just to tell a story, an entertaining story. But, uh, but there is a deep purpose behind them, um, and they're important. So uh, there is another thing we wanted to discuss. Um, I don't think we're really going to have time to get into it in detail, but just to tease it for perhaps a future episode, or if you want to say just a couple sentences about it, um, the uh, papers of uh, John Paul Stevens um, have, been, have been released, or at least some of them, um, some records of John Paul Stevens' justice on the U.S. Supreme Court were uh, made available. And uh, that has some implications for some of the things that we've been talking about uh, in recent weeks and months. You care to say yes. a couple of words about that? Um, yes, our friend Joan Biskupic, who's going to be appearing on the podcast, she's agreed to, to come on, highlighted in particular certain things from the Casey decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, because Dobbs is on everyone's mind. And Dobbs, of course, reminds us of Roe and the reaffirmation of Roe in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. So there's been a lot of attention on what Justice Stevens's papers uh, tell us about the deliberations in the Casey decision. Justice Stevens was not on the court for Roe versus Wade, which was 1974. He, he joined the year after that. There's also been a bit of attention paid by Joan Biskupic and others to what the Stevens papers tell us about Bush versus Gore. I think actually that uh, Joan's piece in the CNN missed one really key issue. I'm so glad she focused on Bush versus Gore, but I think she missed one issue. And Vic Amar has highlighted this in a piece, and we'll, we'll, we can post it in, in Verdict. Um, Josh Blackman, I think, has noted this for Vol Conspiracy. Uh, Derek Muller has, has noted this. He's got a blog on this. But when you look at the Stevens papers on Bush versus Gore, you see that Anthony Kennedy was very skeptical of ISL theory in the oral argument in the decision and in um, some of the early memos. Sandra Day O'Connor was actually initially saying ISL-like things, independent state legislature-like things. And in fact, several paragraphs of what becomes the Rehnquist opinion for himself 
Chief Justice, then Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, joined by Justices Scalia and Thomas. Major portions of that three-justice concurrence actually came word for word from a memo that Justice O'Connor initially penned, and she doesn't join it uh, at the end of the day. So I think reconstructing everything Justice Kennedy, from the beginning, was more skeptical. He, he's very polite about in his ways of, of saying some of this, but he was never on board for ISL. And you see that statements at oral argument. And he eventually carried O'Connor with him. Only three justices said ISL-ish things in Bush versus Gore. Now, why is that important? Well, that's enormously important because later on, five to four, Justice Kennedy will be the key vote against ISL in a case called AARC, the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission case. And it's now this. So Justice Kennedy, on this view, has been completely consistent. He's always been skeptical of ISL. From the beginning, he's invoked the idea of a Republican form of government that in which each state will decide under its state constitution how it wants to operate. He's always understood the central importance of state constitutions. He's always understood the importance of the Republican government clause. Why is that? Why is any of that important, you might say? Oh, because he had a law clerk. And his law clerk actually succeeded him and is sitting in uh, the seat that he once occupied. That law clerk is named Brett Kavanaugh. And that law clerk as a young man, actually was involved in the Bush versus Gore litigation and at that time seemed to actually say some things that were kind of um, in line with Rehnquist and ISL. But now we know because these papers have come out that his boss, his mentor, was never an ISL person and wasn't an ISL person in oral argument in Bush versus Gore, wasn't an ISL person in the memos that led to the written opinions in Bush versus Gore, emphatically was not an ISL person in the AARC case where Kennedy was to repeat the decisive fifth vote against ISL. And if Justice Kavanaugh really thinks about whose tradition he wants to carry forward, these Stevens papers are really interesting evidence. And, and this is what Vic is, is, is highlighted in particular. Kennedy was anti-ISL, and if Kavanaugh wants to be faithful to that Kennedy tradition here, he should be anti-ISL too. And that would be, you know, Andy, you and I both know we were in the courtroom uh, when Moore versus Harper was, was argued how Justice Kavanaugh could end up being the swing justice in this case. Yes. Well, let's hope. And of course, you know, you you know, you also mentioned how he sort of uh, had a certain what appeared to be a little bit of an evolution uh, during the run up to the 2020 election, where there were a number of cases that came before him, and and there were questions of certiorari, and you know, he he spoke, uh, and you know, in one in one case, it sounded like he might be saying something a little ISLE, and then after that, he didn't do that anymore, even though he had yeah. opportunity to vote in that direction. He didn't. So we'll see if we, or maybe these, we won't these, see, these depending on what they do are, with Moore versus Harper, and there's going to be more briefs in right, Moore versus these Harper. Stevens papers are really interesting on Bush versus Gore, and our audience should read Vic Amar's um, essay on this topic. And we'll post it on the show notes. Thanks. Okay. Well, thanks for doing that uh, briefly. And uh, so, um, you know, really excited about next week. Um, 
when we uh, look forward to the uh, Kathleen Clark joining us. And again, send us your questions and uh, and we'll ignore them. No, we'll 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 check them out <laughs> and uh, and and use use them if they're uh, if they're on target. Kathleen is really amazing, and we're very grateful that she's agreed to do this because she's the expert. Okay. Well, until then, thank Great. you.